Hello, mate. <laughs> Cheerio. <laughs> Cheers, my Jove. Pour me a little spot of tea. Let me put around me kitties. <laughs> Let me put me Beatles off. Brando, I got some exciting stuff for, for you and the people today. Nice. It is National Cave Diving Month, but this year it is truly international. Finally. Great Dive Podcast Cave Diving Month. Finally. Because we're going to take a little trip across the pond, as they say, over to jolly old England, the old country. The Sword of Excalibur. Cheese. Have a couple pints. The Great Dive Podcast is hosted by your buddies, James and Brando. The Cave Divers. He got out of the water. <laughs> Son of a bitch. You, you need to come up with great ideas? You go to the pub. Welcome back to the Great Dive Podcast, everyone. It is... International Cave Diving Month, and we are here to take a little dip. Is is January, is it January, or does it start like in the middle of January and go to the middle of February? I think that would be more appropriate for... for well, yeah, uh, that's, what we, uh, that's what we did. Okay. We started it in the middle of January. <laughs> okay, good. So officially, <laughs> it's the, officially it's the last two weeks of January, the first two weeks of February... The second stupidest thing that two divers could think of, <laughs> starting a national event month in the middle of the month. Well, it, it sets only, us apart, James. It sets us apart. Only dumber than the thumbs up, thumbs down rating that confuses people even more. Well, that's what we're all about is, uh, you know, setting things on their head, making people think. I like it. Screw the normal. Screw, screw the conventional. Let's do this, Nash, International Cave Diving Month. Now, one of the places that I've never been to but want to is heading over to the UK. Oh, you've never been to jolly old England? No, I've, I've been to a couple places in Europe, but I haven't spent any time in the UK. I really would love to. Looking now, you know, at some stuff getting ready for International Cave Diving Month, the caving over there is a completely different ball game. It's a, than, it's a whole other species, James. Yeah, yeah. And it's—I mean, it's really the the place of origin for cave diving too, much more so than even our our Florida springs, at least in the books. You know. Well, yeah, because when you know when we look at the early pioneers like Sheck diving in the sixties, 70s. Right. Yeah, that's like 20 years after the Aqualung right. and they were, really came out, you know. And so, I mean, like scuba was well established by then. And a lot of the early Florida cave divers were doing the exploring as cave divers 
Whereas these guys over in the UK were caving. Right. They and got were, to water. They were spelunkers, and, right? Yeah, and, and just hold their breath <gasps> and, <laughs> and go for it, man. It's, oh, it's, yeah. It's ballsy, ballsy shit. Well, that, they, well, even in the 30s, they started, you know, using military hard hat and just walking through the caves. And they kept doing that. They kept on doing that, so. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you'd mentioned earlier that it's a completely different species. Right. And I, the, the way it started and the way it's grown over there is completely different than, you know, what you would see out of a, a Florida cave diver going through cave training in some place like Jenny Springs, which is a completely different animal in and of itself. And what has become proper, you know, configuration and rigging to take your cave one class is completely different than, <laughs> you know, dropping into Swilden's Hole wow. and trotting through to Sump One and, and, and going under. Yeah, when you look at the conditions they have to, actually the obstacles, I guess I'll call them the obstacles they have to overcome to actually get to the water to go diving in a lot of circumstances there, a lot of the instances. they, You have to be a caver. You have to be a, a, a dry caver, a spelunker, to be able to get to the dive sites before you can even go into water. So I'm telling you, you know, these uh, British cave divers are tougher than most American. A tip of the hat to the Brits. A tip of the hat to them because us Americans, we get pissed off if you don't get a good parking spot at Ginny Springs. Right, right? or that 100-yard walk with your twins is, oh, that's a bitch. But no, when you look at what these guys have to do, it's right, right. It's amazing, yeah. And it's messy. It's it's just muddy. It's just muddy, wet, muddy, nasty traverse just to get to the water. Just to get to the water, yeah, yeah. And then now, you know, you've got, you know, some guys that are exploring like the very, very end of that Wookie Hole system, which is going deep. I mean, it's it's over two hundred feet deep. Yeah. I did, but it's a lot of shit to get through, to get there. Just to get to the water, so you can go explore that depth, right? Wet and dry, and wet and dry. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we got a lot of, lot of emails over the last year, telling us, you guys got to watch the rescue. You got to watch the rescue. You got to do a show about the rescue. Yes. So, so I did watch it. That's where I first came across this guy. Rick Stanton, who is in the article that you sent me. Yeah. And, you know, he's one of the explorers that is doing the stuff at Wookie Hole. And it makes perfect sense <laughs> when you look at the conditions of that Thai cave, you know, why, like, this guy's name would have come up. Because it's the same, like, flow in water, you're walking through water with gear on, right. and you're diving through areas, and you're up, and you're down, and it's completely different than diving into little river in florida well yeah when you you look back at that incident in the thai cave it was a, a group of uh i guess boy scouts right thai boy scouts no uh no they were a, a school a, a soccer team oh soccer team were, yeah, yeah, yeah. damn it damn it you think i know with all the soccer in my life way to way to piss off everybody <laughs> in the world <laughs> i can't believe he couldn't <laughs> Like every soccer mom in the, on the planet Earth is like, that son of a bitch forgot they were soccer kids. <laughs> I, I don't know why I was thinking they were Boy Scouts, but 
regardless, it was a group of young boys stuck in a cave because they had dry caved in. They had they had hiked into the cave and it flooded, which. Yeah, yeah, because a flood came early. The rains came early. Yeah, that just goes to show you, I mean, you better be 2,000% on your weather forecast when you're going into these dry caves. Yeah, no kidding. Um, and then, like, watching some of the stuff that you can watch on YouTube of these guys going through these sumps. Yeah. And especially when we get to the story that I've got for everybody today. I mean, you hit water, and it's across your fingers, hold your breath, <laughs> and uh, let's give it a go, eh? Yeah. Yeah, well, when you don't know where the other end, where the air is, and you just keep swimming forward, that's that's ballsy. And even now, like you watch these guys that are taking their buddies, you know, for their first trip on Swildens, you know, they buy up all their caving gear and get their their wetsuit and then their knee-high boots and helmet and lights and gloves and little harness, even though it's only a one meter sump anymore. I mean, you're going through like chocolate, milk, dark water. Yeah. There's a rope going down that you gotta, at, at some point you gotta, you gotta say, fuck it, let's go. <laughs> and, and hold your breath and just assume that everybody has told, you know, has been telling you the truth and you're just going to come out in three feet on the other side, you know? Or nothing's changed little... there, James. Nothing's changed on the other side. You have no idea. What if there was a cave-in? What if the rocks fell? There's no exit. There's no air pocket there. <laughs> right, right. You know? So it, it's a completely different level of ballsiness to, to do some of this. You know, and as challenging as entering Devil's Ear for the first, I don't know, hundred times or more of trying to run a line into something as challenging as that, or entering Little River for the first time, or for, again, first many times trying to get in, that's challenging, but in a completely different way. Yeah. Yes. It's it's another species, really. I mean, yes, you're in a cave and you're underwater, but but it's not what we think of here in in North America. You know, we've got our, our Mexico caves, we've got our Florida caves, we've got Missouri caves. We've uh, nothing like what's over there in England, jolly old England. Right. the The evolution of diving over here was completely different than the evolution of diving over there. Right. We had some. Some things that, uh, you know, uh, characteristics that were in common, uh, you know, inventing our own equipment, modifying uh, present equipment to meet the needs, demands of a cave diving uh, environment. But the cave diving over there is a whole new ballgame. In Martin Farr's book, The Darkness Beckons, he says that the evolution of cave diving in Britain presents an interesting and colorful picture. It takes its roots from the world of caving, a situation that has changed little to the present day. And it is not surprising that the first attempts at cave diving using specially designed equipment occurred in the home of British caving, the Mendip Hills. Pioneers Herbert Balk and Dr. Ernest Albert Baker had been exploring the caves of the area since the turn of the last century, and their discoveries and accounts were impressive. One of their first explorations was Swilden's Hole, 
which they first entered in 1901. A wet 12-meter pot, affectionately known as the 40, held up explorations until 1914. And it was not until 1921 that the now famous Sump 1 was reached. This point, about 610 meters from the entrance, apparently involved a 16-hour round trip for its discoveries, though today it is reached in less than an hour. So just to get to the water, you're you're dry but wet, like sloppy mud, yeah. wet, you know, water rushing and falling and raging, you know, around your feet, making everything just muddy and wet for an hour hike nowadays, like that everybody knows which way to go. Yeah. Yeah. To get to that first sump. Right. Yeah, it's uh it's quite an ordeal just to get to the location. You know, reading up on some of the history of uh, the cave diving group, Wookie Hole in particular, the Wookie Hole cave system. And you learn, uh, you know, this all started in the 30s. They started diving this, this area. So they were hauling equipment on uh, bicycles, tandem bicycles with little carts, little trailers behind them, towing this. These bicycles were towing the carts full of gear to the to the site and then um yeah you make the trek with all the equipment through the mud through the rocks you basically do a a dry cave traverse kind of thing and uh, set up for your diving it's crazy but it's an interesting area that wookie hole cave system i don't know if you how how much you've read about it but it's uh it's got a i mean it's they use it for film sets they uh madame tussaud well, that she owned that attraction at Wookie Hole Caves. Yeah, because topside, it's it's like just the beautiful English countryside is, and it's a huge tourist attraction. Even back in the '30s, it was a huge tourist attraction. That's why when you read about a lot of the diving going on there, they had to do the diving in the middle of the night. They were going in and at midnight, they were hitting the hitting the water because during the day, it was a major tourist attraction. So they didn't want to, you know, bother the tourist with all the cave divers. But now the cave diving, it goes on all the time because it's part of the attraction to see the cave divers. Right. And for them, it didn't really matter because it's going to be pitch black anyway. Right. Well, exactly. <laughs> if you're going in the middle of the night, it's just like, well, it's no, my normal sleep time. I would. <laughs> Although I've been out diving in Ginny in the middle of the night. Kind of different feel. Now, this was, you know... Um before in National Cave Diving Month, we did the story about Norbert Castoret and his first cave dive, which, you know, we we went through that one. I mean, that was exciting as well, where, you know, he was doing the same kind of thing in France, you know, right. in the Pyrenees, mm-hmm. you know, and he did that very first dive with the candle. Remember, he had the goddamn candle for a dive light. <laughs> you got to you got to. Give it to him. You got to give him the credit there because you got to remember all this stuff was, it's new. It wasn't established. You had to make up stuff. Right. And it's crazy because now, I mean, literally you can drive down to Florida, buy your rebreather cave diving class, and you're all the way at the back of Jenny Springs in a weekend, just about, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't go that far, but yeah, I get you. Whereas when we look at 
this early exploration of Swilden's Hole to get to that first sump took 16 hours of, of journey. And, you know, that was, you know, 16 hours once they finally knew how to get all the way back there. I mean, it was a little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit to get to that point. Right. That's how a lot of cave diving goes. You know, when you're establishing new new cave, when you're you're exploring new cave, it a lot of times doesn't go, you know, a thousand feet at a time. It goes fifty, hundred, et cetera. Martin Farr says that it was at Swilden's Hole in April nineteen thirty four that Graham Balcom and Jack Shepard made the first serious attempt to penetrate a water filled passage. Their description of the floating scum and marsh gas issuing from the muddy bottom conjures up a familiar picture for the cave diver of today. To these pioneers, with their primitive equipment, it must have held some real terrors. Like you remember, like imagine, like in the in the 30s, where you literally thought like you're either going to see God or the devil on the, <laughs> on the other on the other side of a rock, yeah. you know, like, and to still want to keep going, man. That's, it's, that's some wild, wild shit. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. You always get this thing. Like these people were fighting dragons in their mind or something. They were I don't they were in England for God's sakes. I don't think it was. There's all kinds quite, of dragons over there. Have you ever watched I mean, Game uh, of Thrones and dragons everywhere? It's Graham Balcom, you know, he he's a freaking engineer, he's a telecommunications engineer. These guys were scientists and they didn't they didn't go too much into they didn't think they were going to see God or the devil under there. I don't think that was going. I'm going to go out on a limb. I don't know. I, I honestly don't know because I, I, I wasn't there. But I think they were more level-headed <laughs> went in. Of course, you don't know what you don't know. And especially at that time, you really didn't. You knew nothing, right? Right. There's no telling where, you know, what lies beneath. Right. You know, what lies beneath that surface of that water? And even still today, when you go down to Florida, and, and you know, there's there's people still today, like, you go into that water, you go into that hole? Yeah. You know, that, that there's, they still, in 2022, will look at you like, <laughs> you going in that swimming hole? You don't know hole. what's down there. What are you doing? Y'all jumping in the swimming hole, are you? Why y'all want to do that? You reckon you're going to come back? <laughs> you reckon you're going to find monsters down there? Yeah. Well, again, I guess education has a lot to play with it. <laughs> While explorers in France and Switzerland may have trialed standard equipment, the bulky and heavy apparatus was wholly impractical in the caves of Britain. To fit into the tighter and more constricted passageways of the UK, an underwater respirator was constructed by Balcom and Shepard early in 1934, which fitted with inlet and outlet valves enabled the diver to inhale through a 12 meter length of garden hose and exhale into the water additional equipment included a nose clip swimming goggles and an ordinary headband type electric torch as this was long before the invention of the wetsuit the initial exploration took place in the normal caving attire old clothes and protection against the cold was very poor. So no, uh, no TLS dry suit <laughs> back in those days, huh? Yeah, that that's something else when you think about it. I have to imagine that their their um, 
their explorations weren't very long in duration just because of the cold. I can't imagine. I'm, 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 I, I think about our cave diving and, of course, you know, we have dry suits and thermal underwear and all that stuff. But to be jumping in that water with just your regular street clothes and, and iffy gear at best, iffy. <laughs> right, right. We, we have gotten really soft. We have. We are soft compared to the old days. Fuck. Absolutely. I mean, you, when you look at Jacques in, in the early days, but yeah, I mean, it was standard to just jump off the boat in a, like a Speedo swimsuit. Yeah. Regardless of the temperature, unless it was extremely cold. You got, you know, from that Norbert Castoret days, like he hit water in France and just took all of his clothes off, put them on a dry rock and yeah. went in with his candle. <laughs> right. I mean, that was his wetsuit was nothing. <laughs> well, he wanted dry clothes when he came back. Right. And he, right. Probably, he only probably owned one pair of undergarment underwear. Yeah, thinking back, the the reliance on your surface support for your your life support right there. That you better be trusting. You don't know what's happening up there. Right. I mean, at one point these guys were using uh, a football pump. Yes. Hand pump. Well. Connected to a garden hose. You know where you had to time your inhale with the same time the guy was pushing down on the pump. Son of a bitch. And if you guys got in a fight before before you went in, it could be things weren't on the all smooth between everybody. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. And that, that right there offers up its own problems. You can see a number of problems popping up there. I mean, also, we have a longer lifespan nowadays than they did back then. So... Although I think they were tougher, they just did what they had to do. Uh, they also died doing it quite often. Unfortunately, the uh, paving the path for is paved people with, like you and yeah. I to go do a, a fun little trip, you know, into Peacock. It's paved with it's, bodies. It's paved with dead yeah, bodies. Right. I mean, that's everywhere. That's on everything too, though. But yes, it's a lot of a lot of history of uh, people looting. Losing their lives so that we can go um, have fun. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. So in the book, The Cave Divers by Robert Burgess, which if you're not familiar with, is, is a fantastic book. I think you can still get this. Yeah, you, you still can. It's, uh, it's on Amazon. You can get it uh, on Amazon for your Kindle. To read it electronically, you can uh, get a paperback. Seven bucks. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, well worth it. I mean, it's it's a little over 200 pages of just, I mean, exciting cave diving stories. Although the hardcover says it's $632. Woo! And 53 cents. I don't know how they come I, up with that. That uh, I have in my, in my hand. Hardcover? A, a, a one of the original hardcovers yeah. then. Why? Well, Originally purchased for nine dollars and ninety-five cents. Dude. Copyright nineteen seventy-six. Nice. I'm trying to think where I got my copy for I've had this for a long, long time and I just uh I don't remember where I got it. I know when I got it it was a great you know, I read it real quick. It was uh it's a great book. It's got a, you know, an all-around view of cave diving and, and all the uh, influential people that helped 
develop it. Yeah, from the early days, right? right? It, I mean, it's got the story of Jacques and uh, the Fontaine de Vaucluse. Right. It's got Norbert Castoret's story that we looked at. It's got uh, this early stuff at Wookie Hole. It's got stuff down in Mexico. Um, it, it's got like 14, I think 13, 14 different stories from around the world uh, just about people exploring caves. Right. And uh, it's it's fun, exciting. He writes uh, he writes really well, um, so highly recommend this to to anybody who is a cave diver or just likes cool adventure stories. In the chapter titled "The Wet Speleologists," Burgess says Somersetshire in southwestern England is a basin surrounded on three sides by hills and bounded on the fourth by the sea. From the north, the Mendip Hills drop from a thousand foot height along a series of gorges and caves to the southern lowlands. Through the years, the Mendip and Cheddar Caves have yielded valuable evidence of Paleolithic cultures from 750,000 years to about 15,000 years ago. And later, following the Claudian conquest of Somerset in AD 43, the much scattered remains of that Roman occupation. Yeah, you look at this area. This is, uh, of course, this is one of the differences with England and, and America, obviously. Uh, it's so old. The history is incredible. You know, you're always talking B.C. times or, you know, <laughs> right. you're talking thousands of years, not hundreds of years. And uh, it's also beautiful. And you think of, you know, I always think of like the uh, King Arthur legends and whatnot of, when I'm thinking of the forest and the and the the British countryside kind of thing, or the mountains. and dragons, don't forget dragons. the dragons. Dragons always have to pop up. Um, but when you look at this area, this uh, Mendip Hills, uh, that's where the caves are, are all Wookie Hole and the, the Swildens Hole, and uh, it's all riddled with caves and, and tunnels. Um, a lot of what I noticed in doing a little bit of research here is uh, cheese. They, they, they store their cheese in these caves to age. Cheddar cheese. But um, as a matter of fact, you've got, you've got yeah, cheddar. That's what it was, cheddar, the saying. town of cheddar is right there. Right? So for those who don't know, this, this area is in the southwest uh, region of England, of the, of the, the island of England. And it's just, it's just south of Bristol. It's beautiful in all respects. It's gorgeous. Yeah, beautiful countryside. But just riddled with caves and, like they say, peaks and valleys and rock and water, which is perfect for cave diving. Yeah. And Burgess says that, so it's not surprising that in 1934, Somersetshire experienced an awakening interest in exploring the caves for archaeological treasures. Whether prehistoric or Romano-British artifacts, the latter especially appealed to two young Englishmen, Graham Balcom and J.A. Shepard. What particularly fired their imaginations was not what might be found in the labyrinth passageways of the dry limestone caves, but what lay below and beyond the pools of cold green water at the end of some of those passageways. As far as they knew, no one had ever summoned either the courage or the know-how to investigate those forbidding depths. What incredible treasures must await the first to do so? 
Surely every cave inhabitant from prehistoric man to Roman soldier had dropped or thrown something from their period into the pools. And to these young men's way of thinking, those treasures were still there, somewhere, underwater, waiting for the first brave man clever enough to find a way to go down and get them. <laughs> and the sword of Excalibur. <laughs> And dragons. From the Lady of the Lake. Yes, well. Still today, you know, there, there's still a, a draw of that same curiosity and exploration. And not so much that you might, you know, find something cool, but just the excitement and the exhilaration of, like, walking through that dry cave, getting to the water, having to have still the courage to take that breath hold and, and dive through into sump one. <laughs> I like, I like how it's described here in, uh, in Burgess's book here, the, the choice of sites, a scummy odorifus, odorifus <laughs> pool that punctuated a dead end limestone passage, passageway, 2000 feet inside Somersetshire's hole. I'm sure we're butchering up the, the British names of, of these sites as well. So they went to work on the project, he says. On their first attempt to plumb the mystery of one of the pools, they attacked it with no more elaborate equipment than a waterproof flashlight and a pair of homemade diving goggles. This effort quickly provided them with the following information. <laughs> one, the pool was deep, dark, yeah. cold, and exceedingly scary. And two, <laughs> they needed some kind of breathing apparatus that would enable them to explore farther than they could by holding their breath. Uh, those are two good conclusions. They probably <laughs> could have done that without even getting in the water. <laughs> Just look at it. <laughs> well, right. Like, I mean, on your first go, I mean, literally, uh, it could be a meter and a half of distance. Right. But... Uh, it's going to take you all of your breath to go in a quarter of that and then pop back out and go, it seems to go forever. It seems to go forever. Well, <laughs> you've got no, you've got literally no idea. Yes. You're, you're writing the story right now. And, and just think about this. So you've got to go in on a breath hold. And if you've got this uh, little flashlight that you've got now, you know how we approach the, the whole idea of lighting for a cave dive is you've got to have three sources, right? These guys have this 1930s homemade flashlight for underwater that they're jumping into this m m just chocolate milk water. Right, right. Like if, uh, if you went to a home that had 1930s electricity. Think about it. <laughs> you, you would not even plug a lamp in. Like, well, you'd be afraid to plug it. And they're using that yeah. to go underwater with, right? And look at the light, even the lighting technology back then. I mean, look at what it, where it's come from when, like, we started cave diving. Like I say, I talk about the old uh, halogen lights, 25 watt, 50 watt, whatever, and the batteries you had to carry. And, and, and compared to the LED stuff or the HID stuff we have now, which is insane, which like lights it up like a freaking football stadium almost. Right, right. And like uh, even back in the early days of having, which were the late days compared to this story, but basically a car headlight. <laughs> Yeah. Like a, a Ford LTD headlight, you know, plugged into a igloo cooler, <laughs> you know, which was your dive light. That was remarkably right. better than what these guys had. Oh, yeah. So you're going down there. 
you don't know which way is out once you get in there because it's chocolate milk you're diving in for all intents and purposes. When you, when you see video of these dive sites, you're like, whoa, that doesn't look like a lot of fun. Sometimes it's it's not terrible visibility, but it's still only in the, you know, one meter to two meters, so three to six feet-ish kind of range. So that's crazy. And, and to think, uh, what if you get down in there and you can't find your way back? Right. I mean, that's uh, like that's the story of, you know, Castor A's dive, which blows me away. Like from when he went down with he he had a bathing cap with with five candles in it. (laughs) (laughs) That was uh, we we joked like that was the original rule of thirds, you know. Um, Yeah, because you're in you go through that sump and then you're in a room. Right. With zero light other than a candle. And how do do I find that same spot back? Right, it takes just crazy, it, crazy. It, it takes some physical, uh, what's the word? Physical balls. <laughs> I was going to say in America we call balls, it balls. Yeah. You got to have some serious balls and some mental fortitude because just think of getting in there and going, "Where the fuck am I? I have no idea." And then you you second guess yourself, you know, which is the right way out of here. Yeah, something yeah, else, yeah. man. So like uh, like any couple of men who <laughs> hit a hit a roadblock we think of what something they crazy and they, stupid uh, they go to the pub <laughs> have too. a couple pints pencil out a couple of sketches of uh, some different ideas of how we can do what we could do to breathe underwater there and they they come up with a couple of ideas and uh in martin farr's book he's got a great photo of uh, them and their their ladies out at a local pond, you know, testing testing out this breathing apparatus. Hey, do you think we could get our ladies to help us test out stuff? I don't I don't think that. No, 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 they're gonna go. You two idiots, go. <laughs> now, now here's the difference. Just, now, if we were in those days, we'd be we'd be something great. I think because <laughs> because we do all that stuff already. You you need to come up with great ideas. You go to the pub, right? And you and you yap about it. Can I have another bar napkin, yeah. ma'am? I mean, the the I've got a great idea. <laughs> I need a bar napkin. The Great Dive Podcast was birthed in pubs across this country, and when you think about that, and then they get their lady, their their fine young ladies to help them, the partners in life. We can't. I don't think that our ladies would do that. Different times. Well, the way the breathing apparatus was described uh sounds like something that one of our wives would <laughs> describe one of our creations <laughs> quote it was it was they finally built this thing and it was described later as quote a crazy respirator out of an old bicycle frame and 40 feet of garden hose nice we can do it brando we can do this now in a lot of the stuff i was reading they were using uh rebreathers Rebreather technology. Uh, late, later they did, yeah. Well, I, I was even reading in the 30s. They were. I thought that's what they said. Anyway. In Martin Farr's book, he's got Belcombe's rebreather apparatus that he used. Um, looks like that's from about 10 years later. Oh, in like oh four, okay. In 1945. Okay. Burgess says that like the intrepid inventors they were, they carefully tested the device both on land and in the shallows of a neighborhood pond. On all occasions, it worked flawlessly, so there was nothing for it but to make the historic dive. 
And that's where they uh, went into that scummy, odiferous pool that you were describing over at Somersetshire's Swilden's Hole. On the day of the dive, had any passerby seen them carrying their odd-looking equipment into the cave, they surely would have wondered what was amiss. For it was certainly not often that you saw people carrying bicycle frames and hoses into such as Swilden's Hole. But Balcombe and Shepard couldn't have cared less. They were too intent on their adventure and what they hoped to find in the drowned treasure room at the end of the limestone passageway. In the yellow glow of their lights, they set up the diving apparatus on the edge of the shadowy black pool. Balcombe would dive first. Shepard would remain behind to tend the hose and lend any necessary assistance. Balcombe stripped to his swimsuit. Shivering in the chill, moist air of the dark cavern, he wore a nose clip, his homemade goggles, and a waterproof flashlight tied to his forehead. With one end of the air hose clenched in his mouth and the crazy bicycle respirator feeding him air, he gingerly waded into the pool, which deepened rapidly as he walked. When the icy water reached his neck, he sucked hard and fast on the air hose, his heart pounding. <laughs> so so we're talking about, this is the 1935 dive, right? Yeah, yeah. Now that first dive into well okay wait well actually yeah actually this is 34 1934 okay so they haven't gone over to wookie yet they're they're still in swildens okay go ahead yeah he ducked his head under the surface his light poked a feeble yellow finger into the all-encompassing green gloom surrounding him with a last glance and wave to shepherd balcom summoned his courage filled his lungs with air and pulled himself down and instead of sinking as he intended, he tended to float. Trying again, his hands brushed against jumbled rocks lying below him on the sloping bottom. Grasping a sizable chunk, he found that it provided the weight he needed to sink slowly into the gloomy green depths of the pool. Man, the, the, the last two open water students I had were, were this afraid, <laughs> like going into the crystal clear... YMCA swimming pool. <laughs> yeah. He says, despite the shock of the incredibly cold water and the heart-quickening experience of sinking into an unknown black abyss, Balcombe, still eager, strained to see what the feeble rays of his light would reveal of his surroundings. And all he saw was a uniform brownish-green gloom with bubbles of marsh gas rising around him. As he continued downward, his ears began aching from the increased water pressure. Not knowing what was wrong or how to stop it, he simply gritted his teeth and hoped it would disappear. (laughs) (laughs) Pop! Yeah, it's gone. (laughs) Oh, oh! It's gone. Yeah. What? (laughs) What? Hey, Malcolm. What? Malcolm. <laughs> Why are you guys Malcolm. talking so soft? <laughs> Can you hear me? Speak up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, surprisingly, it did, accompanied by a high-pitched squeaking in his ears. Momentarily, he wondered if he had burst his eardrums and would never hear again. These guys literally knew absolutely nothing about 
going underwater. The, the physic, right. physics of going underwater at all and are still just going for it. Yeah, so we kind of admire them now, but only because I think nothing, there was no training available right at the time. Versus now, if somebody would do this, we would go, uh, you're a moron. Why? Hello. <laughs> take, take a class, learn how to do this, figure out at least you have the internet at your fingertips you can read. Yeah, back then, just think. It, it's hard for people to imagine. I think it's hard for people to imagine especially the young people, time before computers, before internet, before libraries were, you know, had this, all this information at your fingertips. I had a kid, you know, a, a couple of years ago that was coming into the shop, super enthusiastic, super excited, you know, was getting into diving, wanted to do some cave diving. But, you know, he reminded me of these guys. He just he just wanted to like do it all himself, and right. I credit him a little bit, but uh, at the same time, I was like, um, "Slow your roll, homie, <laughs> dude, dude, dude it, this is all very well established how to do it correctly." And exactly, like, you don't have to ignore all of that and take your bicycle apart and try to do this yourself. This stand on the shoulders I've of got, giants. I've got gear man. right here. Yeah. Class starts tomorrow. Stand on the shoulders of giants. Don't you don't have to reinvent the wheel, just to say you reinvented the wheel and make all the mistakes and possibly cost you your life. Right. You, you go through mom's kitchen cupboard and you're like, oh, this <laughs> this uh, this plastic cup looks big enough to put a light bulb in. Nice exactly. duct tape. Uh, <laughs> I've got some old Tupperware here. This is going to make a. Is Tupperware still a thing? Is it still out there? No. Yes, you can make a you can make a rebreather out of it easily. <laughs> exactly. all, you, all you need this is, is uh, I just need some soda sorb and grab, <laughs> wait, give me the uh, give me the spatula. Uh, <laughs> what are you gonna use the spatula for? I'm gonna use that for for what? I'm gonna make uh, a it's, valve it's for my counter It's called a propulsion device. <laughs> it's gonna, called a propulsion I'm device. Duct tape them on my ever feet. Heard of it? <laughs> yeah. Duct tape them on my feet. They're the best fins for for caving. You know what would be better? Hmm. If we cut a split down the middle of this spatula. Oh, genius. Let's try it. <laughs> genius. <laughs> Got this old turkey baster I'm going to use for a snorkel. We're golden. <laughs> Suddenly, he was plunged into total night. His light had gone out. Imagine that. His heart double-timed. He sucked rapidly on the hose, wondering why he was not getting air faster. And he immediately dropped the rock and pulled up for the surface. As abruptly as it had gone out, Balcom's light reappeared. Glancing down, he saw the reason. He had reached bottom and became completely immersed in its velvet soft mud without realizing it. <laughs> Sounds like where we dive here. <laughs> you could just reach your arm in and it just keeps going. There's right. no it's, bottom. It's, uh, Yes, when yeah. you, it's like when you hit bottom at our local lakes, at the bottom just keeps going and right. going and going and silt. It's like super soft. Millions of yeah, millions of years of just muck and marl and billions, billions. Yeah, yeah. But the difference is we don't we 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 hopefully are neutrally buoyant and swimming over the top of it with good propulsion technique. But if you've ever seen someone overweighted and not in control of the buoyancy, that's what you have is what, what he's experienced, which 
which is a, what a lot of cavers over there were doing. They just walk. Not a lot. They all just walk on the bottom, right? They just walk through the cave. Right. And, and uh, you know, that's, I think, where things really evolved over here in the States with finesse. The, the finesse game. Yeah. But I, I think it's because it, in many ways is the it was all underwater. Um, it, it, if you wanted to do any exploration, like you needed the finesse to really even just get into some place like Ginny. You mm. needed the finesse to get, you know, far enough back to do any exploration. It, it just evolved a different way with with the equipment being completely wet, right. uh, the control, it, it's a different game. And there's heavy, heavy and flow. I, I'd be, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and as much as I, I understand the gear that we use, you know, I mean, I, I'd be hard, hard to tell somebody that's been doing it a completely different way their whole life successfully. I'd just shut that, up. <laughs> I would just shut up and let them do their thing, man. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. But so many people are like, um, I was on scuba board, and uh, it says that you yeah. are supposed to have uh, long hose yes. and jet fins. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of where all that is born. It's out of ignorance. You, people don't you don't understand until you get in the, this cave system and understand this cave environment. And when you look at how the cave is formed over there versus over here, I guess they share some, you know, many of the same characteristics in the formation, but this is in like a mountainous area, right? Uh, with yeah. peaks and valleys, whereas Florida caves are basically a basin. They're flat, you know, it's flat land. It's a plain where the water, you know, seeps through the porous limestone and, and dizzles out these passageways in the karst environment that is crystal clear for the most part, right? Totally different world. Exactly. Right? Could you imagine uh, parking your truck at the bottom of the mountain <laughs> throwing, throwing your twin 104 start hiking <laughs> start, start hiking the swill until you snap a ankle or something yeah on those slippery rocks well, and you know what it's like just to go on a slippery stair at the quarry how many people slip and fall now just think of these oh, yeah, rocks yeah. with uh you know 100 pound tanks on your back bottles so he got out of the water as his old buddy Shepard uh, helped him stumble ashore, and they, they say here that he was just cold, freezing, and, and racked <laughs> with spasms. Fuck this noise. <laughs> <laughs> right. Is I think, quote, unquote. He says, quoting Balcom, he said, cold water and my nervy condition quickly reduced me to a state of uncontrollable shivering. Been there. <laughs> yeah. And uh, rushed out of the cave and uh, tried to get dressed and warm himself outside in the sunlight. Shepard reassembled their gear and prepared to make his maiden voyage into the watery pit. <laughs> well, you got to give Shepard. I was just gonna say, give Shepard some credit here because he just watched no this. No kidding. Like, why in the fuck would I go? I don't need to do yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> let's get the hell out of here. What were we thinking? Let's go join the ladies at yeah. the pub. Well, he didn't come out going, "Oh, that is awesome. This is so cool. You got to try it." You gotta try it. No, <laughs> came no. out, you know, shivering and like, uh, yeah, like, like he did just see death <laughs> down there, right? <laughs> like, like he got down and like the Grim Reaper was sitting right there, <laughs> looking at him, or, hey, or a dragon, <laughs> right this way. But no, uh, Burgess said that he enthusiastically, like, uh, was was not 
any way diminished of uh, of doing the dive himself and put his gear together and got into the chilly water and sank from sight. Now, Burgess says that his reactions to the subterranean submersion was much the same as Balcom's. Knowing the danger of sinking into the soft mud bottom, however, he avoided it and kept himself out of any trouble. As Shepard made his way along one wall of the pool, he dimly saw the opening of a narrow passageway leading off to the right. Cautiously, he entered and followed it, tugging at the tightness of the air hose he had slipped under his left arm. Turning his head from side to side, he swept the faint yellow beam of his light over the angular walls ahead of him. They stretched on as far as the short limit of his visibility, the bottom thick with the wet, soft, silty mud bottom that boiled up before his goggles like smoke whenever he moved his hand too close to it. Right, we know, you know, diving now, if you kick up the silt, that, that's a great description of, of that smokiness right. that, that, that pools right. up from the, the, the wash of your fins. We know exactly what's going on out in open water because you new diver gets too close to the bottom, poor kicking technique, bad trim, you know, destroying the visibility for everybody, and you got to swim up and over and around to get away from that. This, like, <laughs> Shepard's going in, and it's getting bad. It's getting worse. <laughs> it's getting worse. And he's still going. And that, yeah. that, that blows me away, like, that, that courage. Yeah. Well, he did have his air hose. So that, there's, there's <laughs> it a was way. Under, it was under his left arm. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, again, this is what, like, like I, I wish I knew Burgess back in the day, in my early youth of, of getting into diving. You know, he was still around back in those days. And, you know, back in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, I think he was still around then. And Like, because this was a guy who's genuinely loved diving and loved cave diving and did all the research, the old, you know, library. Right, right. You know, card catalog way, <laughs> not... You know, not typing and sitting, your... uh, sitting on YouTube <laughs> exactly. till two o'clock in the morning watching videos. Not the you know? YouTube Academy of History and Science. <laughs> yeah. Enticed farther into the tunnel by the tantalizing thought of what may lie just beyond the blurred and gradually constricting passageway he was following, Shepard was unprepared for his air hose to abruptly stop him, thinking it had snagged. He reached back and tugged smartly. Forty feet behind him, on the surface, his action jerked the hose off the respirator and into the water. Son of a bitch! <laughs> so, so much for that, uh, that. At least he had his air hose. Right, right. <laughs> now, I just can imagine the feeling. You're like, what the fuck is holding us? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> I seriously am regretting what I just did. Yes. Uh, Burgess says the life giving stream of air stopped. Shepard's last surprised gasp got little more than firm resistance from the fast flooding hose. Not waiting around for the mouthful of water that would surely follow, he dropped everything and started back the way he had come holding his breath. Everything was different now. He saw only stirred up muddy water, but he could feel both sides of the narrow tunnel, and he pushed on in the only direction left. When he lost contact with the walls, 
he almost panicked. <laughs> then, like, like no shit. I, I just wanted to, he can't see anything, and now you can't. You're just in the middle, and then you think, you know, you got to go. If, if whatever direction I move, I better not turn around because right, I'm going right. to be completely confused. But I, my thing right now is I'm thinking, what is Balcom thinking about this? Like. The the fucking hose is gone. <laughs> He's not paying attention. He's like smoking a pipe. He's yeah. uh, you know trying to warm up. Yeah, true, true. He's probably shivering by a fire. Well, I don't even think they had a fire there, did they? When he re- so he realizes he's in open water again. But so badly in need of air, his lungs felt ready to explode. Burgess says, as he frantically pulled for the surface, he could hold back no longer. His last breath burst from his mouth just as he shot through the surface. Gasping and sputtering in relief, Shepard was thankful to be alive. An anxious Balcom helped him ashore. Although not aware of it at the time, their dive into Swilden's hole made them Britain's first modern cave divers. <laughs> almost, almost one dead cave diver and one alive cave diver. Nearly almost two. Uh, yeah, almost true. Both never made true. it back, right? Yeah, that's quite a, a quite a scenario that plays out right there. Yeah, and uh, you know, Burgess goes on to talk about you know the the next dive and advancing the equipment. They realize the the garden hose <laughs> and, and the bicycle pump, just not not quite it's, up to dir standards. Right, it's not you know, optimal. At, at right, we right. could do better. Let's uh, go for a seven-foot hose instead of a forty-foot <laughs> garden hose, maybe. Uh, so things evolved, and, and, and like I said, you know, Martin Farr in in the darkness beckons goes through a wonderful historical account, and we've got some cool stuff coming up now that we are officially into International Cave Diving Month. And this is a great way to start it too. I like that we've gone across the pond and and you know bringing the whole. Our, our brothers and sisters from our beloved Great Britain into our cave diving. It's great. Yeah, and uh, as easy as it is to, you know, learn something, you know, quote-unquote, the right way uh, and just discount every other thing that you see happen and occurring out there. I mean, there's one thing to look at stuff that's, you know, genuinely unsafe, and then there's another thing to just ignorantly think everything different wow. is wrong. Well, one way is dogma. Uh, you know, people following following a system or whatnot purely based on dogma and not an understanding. That's what I used to like about teaching was teaching the understanding of where it comes from. And once you have the understanding, you can now apply it to other environments and other people and other systems of, of diving like these. You understand why they do what they do over in the, in the British caves or in European caves or just different caves than, than yeah, Florida, it, you know? Yeah, and you, and you see where, you know, as right as a configuration of gear is in one place, it's rather impractical in another, you know, yeah. is is safe and is sound and is secure and wonderful is diving, you know, a, a, a DIR twin set like we dive so oftenly, you know, some of the little side jobs that we did. Right. Completely, completely impractical. No, he, he, it would be uh, it would actually be more hazardous to to dive in those conditions with our quote unquote DIR rig, which, again, 
admittedly, it's not yeah, the perfect and, rig for every circumstance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, when you look at you know what's going on over here, I mean, this is this is fun, interesting stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. as much of a believer of you know why I do the things that I do, why we do the the things the way we do with our configuration, it's fun to to learn this history of a completely different way of doing something. Right. And the inverse of that is kind of true as well, which is going into our environments. <laughs> Using a system like <laughs> like that, like they use over there, probably isn't a great choice. It, there's better choices, right? Absolutely, yeah. So. yeah. And I think that's that's what we, you and I, got so much shit from in the, in the <laughs> early days. You know, fifteen, twenty years yeah. ago, of you know the establishment looking at what we were doing. Right. Of hey, you know, we have a nice tried and true system why are you messing with it it's available in neon pink and neon green and <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's got all these extra accessories you can clip onto it why, why are you like doing this homemade plate and webbing and and this garage looking stuff when there's all this you know on the market gear available because you know looking back now you know that's what i you know have strived with over these years of like trying to learn more of other than just the one system out there. And I think, you know, especially now with this show, we've built ourselves a little bit of responsibility to the people to, to share a lot of different stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you a hundred percent. That's um, what you're highlighting though, is especially in the early days where the, uh, you know, the quote unquote keyboard warriors and doing more posting than diving and somebody who actually, you'd get a lot of people, that were espousing our the way we do things, but they were they were uh, uh, paper pen and paper book knowledge of the way we do things. They weren't actually doing a ton of diving and and realizing there's different ways to approach things, and it depends on the environment. And, but you, and I shouldn't say different ways to approach. You approach with the same kind of philosophy. What's what's going to work in this environment? What are the hazards we have to? Uh, account for and then you come up with a system or a method and usually you try to build on what you already know right you you try to build a system that you don't have to change things drastically every time you you go into a new environment that's kind of where we come from but no I'd- yeah yeah you want you want like that i agree that that's what what we've been trying to do for so many years is how do we make it so that it's consistent and it, and it works the same way every time so that i don't have to sit there and think where am I? am I using? yeah yeah what am I using today right, right. and I, I I guess at the end of the day there's a ton of value to that yes more so than having the perfect system right because as you can see in some places there is no perfect well exactly exactly yeah. the the environment will dictate the methods a lot of times and this is this case illustrates it perfectly is you are they're developing a method or a system based on the environment you're watching this development and um yeah not every you can't just have one system for every environment and this one this environment really illustrates that love it this is fun stuff all right people um welcome to national cave diving month I hope you're having fun. We got a couple more weeks of this. Uh, we are going to dive even deeper into Swilden's Hole these next couple of weeks. And um, we're going to have some fun. Yeah, we're going to move over to Wookie Hole, I think. 
Swilton's still good. Yeah, you want to take a little, uh, you want a little, <laughs> little jaunt over to Wookie? Grab our biscuits and, and a spot of tea. And, Grab uh, your Wookies. Go for a stroll over Grab to Wookie. Grab your Wookies, people. <laughs> yeah, I like it, James. This is going to be a good, uh, a good month, a good yeah. four episodes. I'm loving it. So no uh, no reason to sign logbooks. We got a couple weeks to go, my man. Yes. Yes, we're So grab a we're in, grab your grab your uh, stage uh, <laughs> football pump. We're in actually we're in an air pocket. We we've come up from a sump. We're in an air pocket and we're going to we're going to camp out here overnight for 5 like 7 it. nights. I like actually. it. Yeah, I like it. I like it. And we'll move on to to sump 2 maybe next week. I like it. All right, brother. All right, everybody. We will uh, talk to you next week. Safe diving. Blue, blue, blue.